This week on The Futurists, Thomas Fry. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I would see the cover of Popular Science Magazine, the stuff coming out of Bell Lab, and the future was fun. I couldn't wait for the future to happen. Welcome back to The Futurists. Of course, I'm your host, Brett King, with Rob Tursek in the hot seat. Uh, with me this week, we have a, a wonderful guest, uh, Thomas Fry. He's currently one of Google's top-rated Futurist speakers, um, a, a award-winning engineer from IBM. Um, he's the founder and executive director of the Da Vinci Institute. Um, prolific speaker. Uh, ha- he started 17 businesses himself uh, and insisted in the development of hundreds more. Um, he was an engineer for IBM for uh, over a decade. He's on the celebrity speaking circuit. He shared the stage with Rudy Giuliani, Tom Peters, Jeff Walsh. Um, his clients include NASA, IBM, uh, Lucent Technologies, Boeing, Capital One, Visa, Ford Motor Company, and so forth. And he's been interviewed um, pretty much anywhere you read a daily newspaper. Uh, Thomas Frey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No worries. Listen, uh, Thomas, we do this little thing before we get started. Normally on the interview, we just cover off a few worthy uh, news items that uh, caught our eye, that it's Fuji-focused. So, um, Rob, what did you uh, find this week? There's a couple of developments we're keeping track of, uh, and and these are topics that seem to keep coming up on the futurists, and no doubt we'll continue to return to them in the future. Uh, The first item is um, a lot of folks may have the impression that NFTs have gone away with the meltdown in cryptocurrency prices that started in the beginning of this year. Uh, But that's not the case. There's actually a lot of uh, lively development happening in the world of non-fungible tokens. And one news item that popped up this week is that Meta is now going to support the trading and sharing of uh, NFTs across Instagram and Facebook. That means you can link your crypto wallets uh, from a number of different providers uh, with your uh, with your social media accounts and trade there. This is not Facebook's first foray into cryptocurrency. Uh, they famously were behind a couple of initiatives to develop their own cryptocurrency, with th- which they eventually abandoned. But it's quite obvious that Facebook sees some future use for NFTs inside of the metaverse. And this is a step toward that. So we'll keep track of that trend. Uh, the other thing that I've been paying attention to that we'll probably return to in the future episode is the impact of TikTok on social media. And it's uh, an impact that's rippling across all of media. So even streaming media companies like Netflix are now getting affected by TikTok. There's a rising generation uh, that prefers TikTok to any other streaming platform. Usually TikTok is left out of um, any kind of ranking or survey of the leading companies in streaming media. I always think that's a mistake because there's a big group that's watching TikTok. But now we're gradually starting to see the algorithmic feed that TikTok innovated being replicated on Facebook and other social platforms like Snap. And the news this week is that Google is not immune to this trend. One of the things I've noticed uh, in a previous episode is how little Google's interface and frankly, Amazon's interface have changed in the last 20 years. They're still very much text-based and rectangular and so forth. Uh, Well, it turns out that uh, rectangular layout, that page-based layout of text links that you get back from a Google search isn't going to work for the TikTok generation. And so watch watch your Google results in the future. You'll see them responding to TikTok by integrating more media and more visuals into the search returns at google.com those are the, that's it for me this week yeah i saw uh, you know of course uh, tesla did their uh, optimus uh, 
um, robot video. Um, they're they're not as advanced as say uh, the work that we had with um, you know our friend Dr. Harry Kluwer who came on yeah. with their uh, teleoperated robot. That but they've made some fairly uh, rapid progress. Um, having said that, um, you know I wouldn't say it's differentiated from the whole Boston Dynamics stuff that we've seen over the last few years. So yeah, um, it's true. I think uh, Elon yeah. Musk because he openly praised uh, you know Boston Dynamics. Um, so at some point we need to get either. Uh, um, one of those folks could come back on the show or folks from Boston Dynamics to talk a bit about that trend. Yeah, I, he did have a funny quote about uh, the Atlas robot that, you know, the primary Boston Dynamics when it was doing some, like, you know, the parkour calisthenic stuff. He said, mm-hmm. yeah, in a few years, you're going to need a strobe light to see them move. So I thought that was a good uh, <laughs> a, a good quote. Thomas, um, you've been in the Futurist game for quite a while. You started, obviously, as an engineer. But let me ask you this question to get us kicked off, if I can. What was the first moment you knew you wanted to be a futurist? Or uh, you knew that the future wanted to, you wanted to make that your life? <laughs> yeah, I actually started the Da Vinci Institute back in 97. Um, but it was a few years before then. Um, I, d- I didn't really... Uh, know what a futurist was, what they did. And I mean, it's it's really kind of a profession where you kind of make up the rules as you go along. Uh, <laughs> there's We've, we've added uh, uh, a lot more science behind the thinking since I first got started. But yeah, even, even today, though, there's, even though a lot of people call themselves a futurist, there's very few people that make a full-time living as a futurist. So it's um, it requires uh, lots of dedication and you need to be able to validate your thinking in, uh, in lots of interesting ways. Now, you started, obviously, as an engineer. Um, so, um, you know, what aspect of this was, you know, your love for technology, the the nature, the the uh, you know exponential natures of technologies that we we see, and and just trying to extrapolate that from a trending perspective versus, you know, what we see a lot when we talk to futurists on this show, is you know. Um, uh, you know, it was great, great expressed really well by Zoltan Istvan we had on on the transhumanist side recently, which is futurists are tr- trying to ha- in a hurry to get to the future. You know, um, so how much of it is the technology piece of it versus that desire to advance humanity? Well, you know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, I would see the cover of Popular Science magazine, the stuff coming out of Bell Lab. And the future was fun. I couldn't wait for the future to happen. Now, if you ask the average kid on the street uh, what they think about the future, it's mm-hmm. oh, it's more famine and disease, more uh, more wars, more things going wrong. And um, the news media has really done kind of a hack job on the future. So I, th- I think part of my job as a futurist is to make the future fun again. Um, and optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let me yeah. drill a little bit further into that. So I want to follow up on it. It's an interesting point. Um, this topic has come up in the past, uh, utopian futures versus dystopian futures. Certainly Hollywood has uh, its 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 share to answer for in terms of portraying a dystopian future. We get that image a lot in movies. Right, right. Um, but how much do you think that the general population, um, kind of the general perspective of the future, how much do you think that's a reflection of current circumstances? You know, in other words, in an earlier era where there was a lot of widespread prosperity, let's say the 60s and 70s, 
people had kind of a positive view of the future. That's sort of Judson's view of the future was very popular. Um, today, we have income inequality, there's war, there's famine, there seems to be a general breakdown of institutions, international and national institutions. How much do you think people's view of the future is influenced by current circumstances? Well, I think it's view. I think it's definitely influenced by the headlines, and and you get much better clickbait if you have a negative headline. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's that's problematic in a lot of ways. Um, I, I don't think the future is going to be nearly as good as some people are predicting, or near nearly as bad as other people are predicting. I don't believe in the dystopian side of things or the utopian side of things. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, but at times it can kind of go off onto extremes. But um, I I think we have a rich future ahead and uh, just filled with unbelievable possibilities. I think this is an amazing time to be alive. Um, so why, as an why, example, what, why do you think that? What makes you feel like this is this particular moment is so great? Um, because, you know, as, as the internet has come along, it's increased our awareness of the world around us. And, and that has given us insights and, uh, changed our perspective in unique and different ways. Uh, right now I can, I can easily scan through as many as a thousand headlines in a day. And I, I drill down on the things that I find interesting. And that simply wasn't possible even 20 years ago. Um, and with the AI systems that are built in the background, it aligns with my interests. It lines it up with the things that I'm most interested in. So I am uh, I feel I'm much more empowered than I've ever been in the past. Uh, this is... Um, there, there's just so so many interesting things happening, uh, and and then you you find that one little nugget, that one thing that kind of comes out of left field, and it might be a headline. Like I came across this headline uh, a few days ago that Abra is going to launch the first U.S. regulated crypto bank, mm -hmm. and I find that I know strange. I know I, I know um, Bill who who's founded Abra. He's a good guy. Yeah. And and then you start, you see that headline, and then you start drilling down on the possibilities of that. Okay, how does that change things? Well, it enables the, the kind of the integration of lots of different cryptocurrencies into the banking system. Um, it doesn't offer any FDIC insurance on cryptocurrencies because it's not really a currency yet. Um, if you can load these things onto a credit card, what can you do with it? And is there ways of actually gamifying cryptocurrency in a way that it suddenly becomes normal? It feels um, it feels like normal everyday life, like accumulating frequent flyer miles. Um, you spend extra money on this credit card, then you get extra frequent flyer miles. Um, can can we integrate things in a way where the average person on the street is is using currencies uh, on in day to day life, and then you kind of work your way through these series of questions, and that's that's one of the techniques I use um, in the futuring world is what I call question mapping. Mm -hmm. um, it's a technique where you start with the the first question which you don't know how to solve and then you start asking a series of 
more and more specific questions surrounding it. Uh, you ask the who, what, when, where, how, and why questions that naturally come along with it. And then you you ask, well, what came before and what came after? And then you start seeing all, a series of other questions that will start cropping up around all that. And that question mapping technique is really, I think, such a fascinating way of, of getting to an answer. It may not be a complete answer, but getting far closer to the answer than you ever were in the past. It's true. In a way, you were just doing that. You were giving us a little demo of that. Um, you started out with the fact that Abra is launching, a, or you're proposing to launch a crypto bank. Okay, so there's a fact. And then you start to apply some imaginative thinking. You know, you sort of pitch some scenarios to us. Well, what might happen if that occurs? What might the impact be on banking? What might the impact be on other cryptocurrencies and so forth? Um, I think that that's a really good example of your technique. Would you describe it as, as, is that what you do as a futurist? Is that how you operate? You start out with a big question and then you they break it down into a series of smaller questions or provable statements? Well, that that's one of the techniques we've got. Um a little over a dozen techniques that we've developed over the years. We've put together a course. This is our project during COVID. We put together a course called Future Like a Boss. Uh, so anybody who's interested in this, we haven't we, we haven't uh, released it just yet, but very soon. So if you want to get on a mailing list, oh. it's future futurelikeaboss.com. And you can get on a mailing list. We'll let you know when it's coming out. We've got a textbook that goes along with 14 video courses. And um, and it goes into all of these techniques that I've developed myself uh, that are, most of them are, are different techniques than anybody else is using. Um, and it, it helps put what I refer to as anchor point in, in the future that we can kind of uh, build build scenarios around those. Um, so Are they like major inflection points or major milestones or yeah well let's let's take uh this technique i call firsts um so whenever whenever a new technology comes out um let, let's just take the space hotel as an example um who's going to be the first to launch a space hotel who's going to be the first people that are on that space hotel who's going to um uh, be the ones that cook the first food for a space hotel um and and then you you start looking at all of the things surrounding um who's going to be the first paid guest at a space hotel who's going to be the first entertainment at a space hotel and and invariably these are all things that are are very high probability items that we we can refer to as anchors in the future. We can we can then start building uh, scenarios around, and and I find that to be such a fascinating take. Mm -hmm. um, and mm. we can do that with with virtually any emerging technology because there's always people that want to go first. That's part of the human nature. Yeah, yeah. that's. A I, I find example. it I, I find it interesting because you you sort of describe the future. I find I mean the process. I find myself going through whenever I read a news item on a and and you know a new piece of tech or some announcement like that. I'm always extrapolating where's this going to take us, and I think that's the futurist mindset. Yeah, right. Is right. that you, you 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 know that you're always thinking about where do, where does that go, and I think that. That's the element that if you could bottle that or train people to do that, then everyone can be a lot more optimistic. But it also means that people are um, 
you know, you, 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 we get so short-termism, don't we, as humans? You know, we're so oh, focused yeah. on on the next quarter or the next year or the next election. And um, when you know, if we were more ambitious, um, it, you know, I think it would just do humanity a, a, a much greater service. Yeah. But so um, we're very cautious about using imagination or applying imagination. Uh, you know, just last week we had an interview with uh, Elena Hiltonen from Finland who is a well-known futurist in Europe. And, and she defined uh, futuring as facts plus imagination. And I was really happy she did that because nice. candidly yeah. in the business world, people are very averse to using words like creativity and mm-hmm. imagine. We like macho words like you know innovation and ingenuity, but we're a little bit afraid of the word imagination. Um, but what you just described actually is an incredibly useful skill. So for the people listening, what Thomas just described, uh, that idea of asking a series of questions and envisioning possibilities, that can be used right now, today, in product development. Uh, too often, companies are doing product development, focus on a capability, uh, maybe some new technology that they've introduced, and they want to apply it. Uh, but they fail in, con- in in building a good concept of how's the consumer going to use this. Uh, when I work with a company like that, what I try to do is get them to think, like, how will you present it? Where will it be sold? What will the package look like? What will it be priced like? Who's the customer? Where, are they going to put it in a shopping cart? Or is it something they're going to get as a service? How do they find it? How do they buy it? How do they pay for it? How do they use it? And, you know, some of these questions are really, really basic, but it's similar to what you're describing, Thomas, in the sense that you're causing people to think vividly and imaginatively about the scenario in which that thing is actually going to be a reality. And let's, if you can envision it, then you can build it. Let's uh, let's use an example you brought up earlier, uh, Boston Dynamics mm-hmm. and their their robot dog. And you start going through the scenario of, okay, what what kind of capabilities does a robot dog have? Why would I, as a consumer, want a robot dog? And uh, and and you start thinking about well, dogs are for protection, and what kind of things is it protecting us from? And so you think about does the robot dog have the ability to sense danger? Okay, well, what kind of danger? Is it danger from humans? Danger from animals? Danger from weather? If um, uh, some disease is floating through the air, is, is it going to detect that? If there's some radio wave that's coming through, that's uh, you know, going to that I'm going to run into somehow, is it going to protect me from that? And then then you start going through these other questions like why a dog? What? Do I want to be able to talk back and forth to this dog? And and if I have a robot dog, do I take it everywhere I go? Does does it go on the plane with me? Do I have it in a house? If I have a robot dog in a house, does that make the house more valuable? And and then you just start going through the discussion. If I have a robot dog that runs into another robot dog, what what will it do? And can the ro- can the robot, <laughs> robot dog, dog fights now? Yeah, can the robot dog? <laughs> be turned to an offensive mode i mean can you uh uh make it lethal and does does right bare arms give us the to own a robot dog that's armed (laughs) yeah laser Uh, turrets yeah yeah so so then then that starts opening up your thinking just by asking those series of questions Mm -hmm. um from from an engineering standpoint can you think of any times in particular you've really helped organizations change course or you've helped a product um, design go in a different direction because of this type of thinking? I'm just curious. I mean, um, yeah, we, well, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'm, I'm working 
uh, as an advisor for a project in in South Korea, where they're trying to build a theme park based on future jobs, cool. and it's it's quite the innovative project, and um, and so not only you have to come up with what what these future jobs are. You have to figure out, okay, how do we build an exhibit around it? How can somebody participate in a way that makes it interesting? Uh, how can somebody get a sense as to what the work life is going to be like in the future with this particular, uh, and what skills are you going to need uh, moving forward? Uh, so it opens up lots of other uh, mm. things that I find fascinating. Interesting. That's cool. Let's just, well, we're about to hit the break, but before we do that, Thomas, we like to do this quick fire round. Just ask you a few few questions and uh, okay. just, uh, you know, just um, free form it. So what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on via, you know, via TV or books? Oh, probably a James Bond movie uh, when I was, I don't know, 12 or so. Oh. <laughs> um. Name a futurist that has influenced you and why? Um, well, certainly Leonardo da Vinci, but um, uh, I, I love the work of Philip K. Dick. I mean, he yep. was very, very influential. Uh, I mean, he lived back in the 1950s, mm -hmm. but it was uh, all of his thinking surrounded time travel or time thinking uh, in some respect. Absolutely. Um, this is a bit of a tougher one. What do you think is the best prediction a futurist or a sci-fi practitioner has ever made? Mm. Yeah. That's a tough one. Uh, well, um, Elon Musk says that, uh, and, I, and I, I actually said this before he did, but the human race cannot survive if all humans only live on one planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. And, some some of the the talks I do ask this question: Do we live on an overpopulated planet or an underpopulated universe? And right. it's actually the same question from a little different perspective. Very good. And what science fiction story is most representative of the future you hope for? Well, <laughs> uh, one, one of my favorite uh, science fiction movies is the movie Next, starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, I don't know. It's just. I think it's extremely well done. Yeah, uh, you like to have that few minutes of insight, you know. Yeah. Um. So you can change, uh, calibrate um in advance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty yeah. interesting. All right, great. Well, listen. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Futurists. I'm your host, Brent King, with Rob Tursek, and our guest is Thomas Frey. This week, we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with my co-host, Brett King. And this week, our guest is Thomas Frey. Thomas, 
Thanks for joining us on the show. We've had a lively conversation so far. Now let's start to think a little bit more about the future. And and frankly, what I want to understand are what are the constraints on the future? Some folks, when they hear that we're doing this program, they say, oh, futurists, you guys just think everything goes, it's open-ended, uh, any kind of crazy scenario is possible. And I say, no, 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 that's not true. There's actually hard limits. There's constraints that we know about. And within those boundaries, that's where the future is going to unfold. Can you talk a little bit about that? Tell me a little bit about your perspective on the constraints that determine the course of the future. Yeah, I, I heard about a famous uh, physicist one time that was asking this question. He said, um, a thousand years from now, what things will be possible and what things will not? And um, and I, th- I thought that that was such a telling question because the because um, we don't know what the, the hard limits are on the the physical science i mean uh, at what point can we actually see what the ultimate tiny particle is is there something smaller than quarks and uh and neutrinos is there um uh is there something bigger than the universe and and so we don't we don't quite understand where the the hard limits are i i actually had a uh, an architect explained this to me one time. He was he was in the process of building a dome house, and he says when you're when you're working with a dome house, he says domes are actually an optical illusion because uh, whenever you enter a room, your eyes inadvertently go up to the corners of the room, so you understand the space that you're you're in, and uh, the same as if you're on the outside, you look at the corners of the house. And you get some estimate as to how big it is. He says a dome house is actually, um, when you view it from the outside, it actually looks smaller than it actually is. And when you go out to the inside, it actually is much feels much bigger than it actually is because you can't see the corners of the room. And that idea of of going for the corners of the room it has always struck me as such an, an interesting concept because we're always trying to find the boundaries of um, of of what uh, what what the limits are and that we're able to think in, and uh, that opens opens a lot of doors. Because see, we're we're a very backward looking society. Yeah, we're backward we're backward looking because it's just human nature. See, we we've all personally experienced the past. As we look around us, we see evidence of the past all around us. Mm-hmm. In fact, all information that we come into contact with is essentially history. So the past becomes very noble, and yet we're going to be spending the rest of our lives in the future. So it's almost as if we're walking backwards into the future. So my job as a futurist is to help turn people around, to give them some idea of what the future might hold. Yeah. And so that's where I spend a lot of time uh, working on that. And and then when you start asking the question, well, where does the future come from? Where, How does the future get created? Well, we all participate in creating the future, but we actually, our ideas about the future, I, I use this phrase quite a bit, the future creates the present, which is just the opposite of what most people think. Most people think that what we're doing today is going to create the future, but from a little different perspective, it's this image of the future that we hold in our heads determine our actions today. Yeah, it's a drug, so, yeah. Yeah, so if we change somebody's vision of the future, we change the way they make decisions today. And so I use this as my justification for um, for everything that I do, because invariably when I give a presentation, when I give a talk, people are going to walk out of the room making different decisions. And some of those decisions could be worth billions of dollars. And so that's that's how I that's how I justify what I do. 
Okay, this is really powerful stuff. Let me recap to make sure we're on the right track. And for the benefit of the listeners, uh, you really raised two points just now. One is that we're we're kind of doomed to sleepwalk into the future because we're mesmerized by our past. We all understand the past. We've all lived with the past. We grew up with it. Its legacy is all around us. So we're sort of conditioned to think about the past. And I guess the gap that people fall into or the trap they fall into is... Um, linear extrapolation from known things in the past, we try to extrapolate that into the future. And everybody knows that doesn't work because the future doesn't unfold in a straight line. There's always different forces that affect it. So that's a kind of blind spot. Um, and then what you're seeking to do in your talks is to kind of get people to turn their vision towards the future so that they can make different decisions today, so that they can understand that the future that we aspire to or the future we envision is something you can direct action towards. You can make decisions right now that are going to cause that future to unfold. Did I get it right? Is that a reasonable summary of what you just said? Right, right. Yeah. Cool. Um, and are you, I, I, I mean, um, does this make you more optimistic, do you think, as a person, you know, having this type of viewpoint? Yeah, it, it, it it's a stepping stone to other, other kinds of thinking. You know, the the future is far more predictable than most people think that like i can make i can make quite a few predictions uh, high probability predictions like like the room that you're in today is still going to be around 6 months from now i can make um i can i can make that prediction with a high degree of probability that the earth's going to travel around the sun in roughly the same orbit 100 years from now again a high degree of probability uh, that we're going to, 50 years from now, we're still going to have the season, summer, winter, spring, and fall. Uh, even that, if I put a handful of seats in the ground, that a certain percentage of them are going to spring to life. All of these things can happen with a high degree of probability. And in fact, we have so many slow, stable, moving parts to our future that we can plan a birthday party two weeks from now and have enough stable elements surrounding it that we can we can um actually anticipate it being able to pull that off with a high degree of probability um and and so the the biggest things that are uh most of our futures built around this stable of slow moving elements um the the biggest changes happen with animals and nature and people and uh and weather and things like that so uh to the degree that we can get better at anticipating uh those variables uh that gives us a, a massive edge in in the business world i think the science fiction writer charlie strauss is the one who said um most of the future is already here and his point was you know the streets that we drive on the cities that we fly into where the airports are located that stuff's not going to change in a long time because structurally, you know, there's a lot of development around it. There's a lot of architecture and real estate that's been developed around it. And so uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to change it. Very unlikely, barring some, you know, catastrophic climate change incident, it's unlikely that the geography of the planet is going to change. Um, now, let's talk about some things that might change because there's a lot of speculation that our hyper-connected global trading system is under um, uh, is in an advanced stage of, uh, of decay or trouble or trauma right now, starting with the pandemic, but now because of global tensions, uh, war, and so forth, looks like the supply chain is being reconsidered. Uh, so here is probably the most complicated thing humans have ever created. This interconnected trading network uh, it involves uh, manufacturing, it involves distribution, transportation, communication, like just generally all the technologies that humans have developed are integrated into the supply chain. 
to ensure that with a reasonable degree of likelihood, there's going to be, uh, you know, a, um, a package of diapers or a package of coffee on the shelf of the grocery store when you go there next week. You know, you can kind of reliably depend on that. Although in the last few years, it's been a little bit less reliable. Uh, so now we're in the radical rethink mode. Uh, you see this with uh, computer manufacturers. Any company that depends on semiconductors is now radically rethinking uh, where they where they source that supply. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about changes to the, the existing world that are going to affect the future, because I'm quite interested in this theory. This, so it was about seven or eight years ago, I gave a talk for the uh, Turkish Post, and that's the postal system in Turkey. And they every every year they pull together all the postal systems from around the world and uh and they did do this kind of best practices symposium so i gave uh, gave my talk and i started off with this one central question how long before you can mail a package let's say from istanbul and it end up in san francisco without ever touching any human hands now I, I find this to be quite quite fascinating because when we put information into the the internet, the internet routes it around and it comes out over here. It's all done auto automatically. How long before we can put a package into this global system and everything get routed around and it comes out over here right. without ever touching any human hands? And and then I I drove dove in and looked at. Uh, the automated processes that we have in place, and there's there's always disconnects from one uh, one system to another, one country to another, and um, and so nobody had that overarching vision of having an entire supply chain where things would just get routed around automatically. Um, I think it's important that somebody come up with that type of vision, and and then we need somebody who is uh, a global systems architect, somebody who takes on this mission, this uh, this cause, and and actually drives it home. Uh, and and I, I find that to be such an interesting uh, concept right now. It's in, in light of all of the supply chain issues that we went through during COVID that we we really need to come up with more automated systems and 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 uh and take the human element out of out of the middle of all this true yeah uh, this is a giant project the automation of the supply chain it's been underway for about 10 years but we're at least 10 years away from seeing it realized partly but you know there's so the many this fully this, distributed it's fully yeah. it's very decentralized you know there's no one controlling authority that runs the supply chain but there's a lot of systems that need that sort of global design thinking. You know, think about air traffic control, right? Um, think about passport and identity management on a global basis. Um, you know, medical medical information uh, flowing. All highly um, centralized. Money all laundering. Money laundering, um, you know, yeah, management. Yeah. All yeah. the systems you're referring to are highly centralized. They're run by bureaucratic institutions that are highly inflexible, that have a really rigid yeah. process for change. Uh, this is where this concept of radical decentralization becomes such an interesting proposition. No guarantee it's going to work better, but it applies and it posits an alternative to these systems that we kind of take for granted. You know, uh, Thomas, to your point, we kind of sleepwalk or stumble into the future, assuming that the banking system we got is the best banking system we can come up with, and we can, therefore can't contemplate any radical change to it, or that the national standards, international standards that we have uh, that govern the size and shape of parts. Uh, that that can't be reconsidered and can't move faster. Well, when, of course, all those things are possible, right? With enough willpower, political willpower and economic willpower, you could rethink any I of those mean, aspects. You know, the ba banking system, don't even get me started. But 
<laughs> you know, it still takes you five days to send money from one bank to another in the, the US. Yes, we're getting Fed now next year, the real-time payment system. But anyway. So so if if you um, if you think about putting a base on the moon or on Mars, virtually all of our standards that we use on Earth start to go away because none of them make sense. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, suddenly the day-night cycles don't make any sense. Our measure of hours and minutes don't make sense. We have different gravity there. So the weights and measurements all start um, getting messed up. And, capitalism. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, why, do you, why would you need capitalism on the moon and Mars, right? Yeah, uh, I always think about the economy of the Starship Enterprise. They don't they don't spend a lot of time talking about that, no. but it doesn't yeah. make sense. And then yeah. why why should somebody that lives on the moon be governed by laws on Earth? Yeah, uh, that doesn't make any sense. So they're going to create their own laws. Well, how are they going to be different? How do they start from scratch? And, um, and it it gets really interesting because I, all I of these things. The- I can see the influence of Philip K. Dick on your thinking right now. Because well, I, also, I this, like this is, this is also Kim Stanley Robinson with the yeah. Mars trilogy and stuff like that. We well, interview you know, a fair number of yeah. science fiction authors on this show. Tell me a little bit about the influence of Da Vinci, because you brought yeah. him up a couple times. Yeah, and, you I know, like that. It's, it's pretty clear you're, you're influenced by Philip K. Dick, and that's cool with us. But now I want to understand, yeah. like, what is what does Da Vinci represent for you? Like, what what was Da Vinci's role in history? What did he change? The first futurist. Yeah, yeah well, Da Vinci dedicated over thirty five thousand words and five hundred drawings to the concept of flying. At that time, nobody in their right mind was thinking that flying was possible, and uh, in his mind, it was it was entirely possible. And it would take another. Um, roughly 300 years before the first Tadun flight and 400 years before the Wright brothers. Um, so in my mind, this is the the epitome of the true visionary. Um, and, uh, and not not that many people like him. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting when you actually uh, look at all of the the pieces that, that da Vinci left, all the drawings and all the... Um, uh, the the booklets that he created, and um, and there's over over six thousand items that he left. And these items, um, when he died, they all fell into the hands of his his trusted assistant Francisco Maltzi, and and Maltzi kept everything pretty much in place. But then when when he passed on, it was his children that that uh, kind of started tearing things. Uh, apart and and at one point there was a sculptor that got in the middle and he started cutting out drawings and putting them with other drawings to uh, so it made more sense and then a lot of these codexes the the books ended up traveling around in different different ways and then a lot of them ended up um, in Napoleon Bonaparte's possession for a while and. And in the 1960s, some of these codexes were were discovered at the library at the University of Madrid, and um, uh, nobody had a clue what these were, and they were down in some basement room collecting dust. And and it raises raises the interesting question of how many people like Da Vinci existed that we have absolutely no record of. Yeah, yeah. And I find I find that to be the the biggest question of all. Wow. And my guess is there is quite a few of them. Like Archimedes yeah. or something. Sure, but at a time when right. written records right. may have been lost. 
you know, a lot of people think of Da Vinci as a painter, and it's certainly true, you know, with The Last Supper and the Mona Lisa, those famous paintings in the history of humanity were created by by this incredibly gifted painter. He's also a sculptor, he's also an architect, but he's also only, an engineer. Only, seven, only 17 paintings. Yeah, that's really remarkable, yeah, but they're well. all masterpieces, right? Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the what a lot of people don't realize about Da Vinci is that he was a naturalist and a rationalist. And right. most of his work is derived from observ observation, like yeah, very exactly. close observation of the way a river would move. Or, you know, he was one of the first to detect there were currents of air. And how do you actually prove that or demonstrate that? So he put his mind to thinking that. I mean, you mentioned a bunch of, uh, a, lot, a lot of his drawings and um, notes uh, about air flight. Um, but it's not fanciful, right? Those are pragmatic. That's the engineering right. mind. Well, work. you could even you see, see the, the helicopter. You could See, probably built a paper, you know, the helicopter prototype he sketched out. He probably built a paper model of that, you know, like the, the corkscrew thing. And you could see right. him, you could see him playing around with this this stuff. But you're right, um, Rob, yeah. you know, he a well, lot we, of it he observed. Sorry, we, Tom. We got some of the first uh, drawings of human anatomy uh, because he would, he would actually go out in the middle of the night and dig up graves and carve up people and draw draw pictures of what he's seeing. Um, not everybody got to do that naturally. <laughs> uh, they would have been considered grave robbers or something, but uh, his, his what curiosity. Lesson our, what lesson can our audience take away from Da Vinci? Certainly you mentioned curiosity, the sort of relentless curiosity and this close observation. What are some of the things that might help our audience be more future-minded from Da Vinci? Well. It, yeah with with every with every visionary i mean you have to you're a product of your time the time and place where you live um so he um he had the tools that were available at that time um so he he tried to do uh this sketch of himself and he didn't use the best material and so it's very faded and there's very little little of it left i mean creating creating the mona lisa it had to have been redone several times um which the mona lisa is very likely the most um uh the most expensive painting on the planet right now if, if somebody is going to value yeah. it um and and the reason for that is because the Mona Lisa actually got stolen. Uh, not that many people realize it, but it was stolen in the early 1900s, and it was gone for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, something like that, and before they recovered it. And and so that drew a lot of attention to the Mona Lisa. And um, so that was uh, ever since ever ever since then people have had a lot of focus on that one that one painting it's which, it's astounding uh, when you go to the louvre you, you you walk past you walk down the long hallway and you walk past half a dozen da vinci paintings that are each a masterpiece no one pays attention to those because there's this giant line snaking its way into the chamber <laughs> where the mona lisa is and i was thinking right. wait a minute you're walking right past there's john yeah, the baptist yeah. right there you know yeah 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 <laughs> well, well, to mention the sistine chapel yeah, it's the same in the Sistine Chapel. You walk through these these corridors of just endless, remarkable artwork. Everybody wants to see what Michelangelo did. Yeah. Um, quite quite impressive. Um, so uh, can can I ask you then to to wrap up because we are running out of time, Thomas. Um, we at this part of the show as we we wrap up, we want to get a little bit more out there. 
So looking 20, 30, 50 years into the future, um, you know, as, as the futurist you are, you know, um, what what do you look forward to in the future that in terms of advancements um that you know humanity has the potential to make or you think we need to make you know for the future of humanity that really excites you i uh, i actually give quite a t- few talks on this this concept of designer babies uh, the in the not too distant future young young ladies that are pregnant will will have the option of going to a geneticist and they'll have a checklist of different different items that they can incorporate into their unborn child different attributes and and you can do things like hair color and eye eye color and and uh, the chin shape and ear shape and things like that uh, those those are fairly trivial. Nothing uh, controversial but, about that. No, no. <laughs> no, but very likely you'll be able to uh, create a child that is super smart, super resilient, uh, super strong, uh, with the super long lifespan. And and so everything about this child ends up, be, you're giving birth to a super child. And the super child grow up to be a superhuman. And... Um, and then you start asking, um, what's what's the lifetime value of a superhuman? Yeah, yeah. Uh, is is it possible that the lifetime value of a superhuman is a hundred x, a hundred times what the average value of a, a person is today? And and it's interesting going down that, that pathway, that scenario, because then you start looking at, okay, if it's if every superhuman is worth a billion dollars in in today's terms to society or $10 billion, then countries are going to start wanting to have the most superhumans. They start paying women to have children. They'll put them up in a resort. They'll give them a bonus. Once the child is born, they'll have nursemaids there helping them through everything. And, um, and then so suddenly women are going to want to start having, wow, I can have a superhuman. Mm. Uh, this becomes a whole different equation. And then, but not everything about superhumans is going to be uh, wonderful <laughs> because yeah, you can yeah. also yeah. give birth to a supervillain. Um, and super children growing up are going to throw super tantrums. And uh, and so they're going to challenge everything in society then. And uh, and so, so again, these questions start opening up. The I door know, for very me. tangential. Every time we ask a question, <laughs> it's great. I love it because this is we are seeing we are seeing the futurist mindset in in uh, execution in real time. And that's what I like about it. So. Uh, uh, that's that's fantastic, Thomas. Um, so uh, we've heard about the Da Vinci Institute. Um, where can people find out more information about the the stuff that you're doing? Uh, you can go to futuristspeaker.com or go to um, uh, futurelikeaboss.com or uh, futuratipodcast.com. Um, most of the stuff that I'm doing is on those. I, I write a new column every week. The column that I uh, that I just that'll go up this week will be about where the office came from, because where the office came from tells us a lot about 
what the office oh, of the going, future is going yeah. to look like. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, we could have a whole conversation about that. The the, his, <laughs> the future has de yeah. deep roots in the in the past. Well, yeah, listen, Thomas, cool. it's been phenomenal having you on. I, uh, I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Hopefully, we can get you back on at some future date. Um, you know, when you have something important to say, please let us know. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely love to have you back on. Okay, that'll be great. That'll but, be great. Uh, but thank you for your work in the space and, uh, um, you know, um, for uh, showing us, uh, you know, how to think like a futurist. All right. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's it for the Futurist this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please give us a shout out on social media. Um, you know, give us a five star rating. Um, you know, uh, post post the episodes out. You know, we crossed over twenty thousand downloads uh, last month. So for a podcast that just started in April, that's phenomenal work, and we really appreciate the support. But please keep it going, and let us know who else you'd like to hear on the Futurists. Now, thanks go out to the production team, Provoked Media, Kevin Hirschham, Elizabeth Severance, uh, Sylvie, and Carlo on the social media side. Um, and uh, the rest of the team there. That's it for uh, this week on The Futurist. Be sure to join us next week as we have another uh, renowned futurist join us. Uh, but for now, we'll see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.